I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and did not let my foes rejoice over me. Sing praises to the Lord, O you, his faithful ones. Give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. You have turned my mourning into dancing. You've taken off my sackcloth and clothed me with joy so that my soul may praise you and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. This is the word of the Lord. Dr. Hans Joachim Krauss, who spent an adult lifetime working in the book of Psalms to produce a three-volume commentary on Psalms, says, This is definitely one of the oldest, and in my opinion, perhaps the most beautiful of all the Psalms. It may not be your favorite, but it is a wonderful one. I've underlined four things here. First part. He says, in my prosperity, I said I shall never be moved. But as you read the psalm, you know he's no longer in his prosperity. He depicts himself as having been dangled over the shale, over the pit, the place of dampness and darkness, the very place of death. In my prosperity, I said I shall never be moved. The other morning I was making our hospital rounds, seeing all of our Boston Avenues whom we knew to be in area hospitals. Between hospitals, I was listening to the radio. And one of those moments came on where they say, significant things that happened on this day in history. And as the announcer mentioned various things, suddenly he said, on this day in 1961, Ernest Hemingway committed suicide. I remember that. In high school, I had never read Ernest Hemingway. But at Centenary College, they required lots of reading and writing, reading and writing. And I was reading Ernest Hemingway when news came that he had committed suicide. I don't remember so very much about details in his novels. The writing of Shakespeare that stayed longest in my, I mean, of Hemingway in my mind, were the writings about following the bullfighters in Spain. When he talked about fighting and following the bullfighters for months and months, several things I remember. One, he said, matadors sleep as late as they can on Sundays because the moment their eyes open, It's the bull at four o'clock. I identify with that. (laughs) Mine starts about four o'clock on Saturday afternoon. It's the bull at 830 the next morning. It's the bull again at 11. One woman shook my hand this morning and said, your hands are so cold. I said, it's because I'm, I'm afraid. She said, yeah. I said, trust me, I'm afraid. Ernest Hemingway said, every bull that comes charging into the ring decides there's a safe place somewhere in the ring. It's not the same for every bull. Uh, The way the sun's going down late on a Sunday afternoon, it, it may be in the shade over near one part of the ring. It may be in the bright sunshine for another. But I've discovered this. If a matador is not able to coax that bull away from his most comfortable spot, he's far more deadly. 
Hemingway also wrote, Bulls like people, the ones that are pawing the ground and snorting and making a lot of noise, they're usually bluffing. He said, the bull that is clenching his teeth to keep blood from dripping out his mouth will kill you if you're not careful. And he said at another time, one never knows how good a matador will be until his next fight after he's been on the horns of a bull. What about Christians? How do we live after we've been on the horns of the bull? This psalm is about that kind of faith. When one has been so ill, so frustrated, so disappointed, so discouraged, how does one live in the next moment? In the next moment. Number two. I underline this significant verse. God's anger is but for a moment. The Hebrew Scriptures tell us that God's anger is like fire building in the nose. And since God's nose is bigger than everybody else's, it takes it a long time to build up. But when enough fire builds in the nose, then God's anger comes spewing out. But here's an insight of this ancient poet. His anger is but for a moment. When I read this this week, I remember Dr. John Claypool's coming to our church to give the Barton Clinton Gordy series. It's already been nine years ago, nine and a half. He came in 1999 from St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Birmingham, Alabama. And Dr. Claypool said a lot of good things, but one thing he said that week stood out immediately in my mind. He said, God's only interest in your past is what did you learn? What did you learn? How can you do this better? This is a week when we've celebrated our country's 232nd birthday. And so I was reading things that people were writing about our country. I read one article written by Dr. Thomas Madden. He's a professor of history at St. Louis University. And his article said, America's days are not numbered. And then he said that he had recently been in a very large bookstore in St. Louis and had seen a whole section of books written by various authors who were predicting that America's golden age is over. We're on swift decline. That we're going to end up like the Roman Empire did. Dr. Madden said, first of all, that wouldn't be so bad. In fact, when the first critics started writing about the Roman Empire and its immediate demise, it lasted for a thousand years longer. And then he said, we Americans have some safeguards built into our system. That in many cases, we get to vote again in just two years. In other cases, four years. In a few, six years. But there's always another time. And when we do vote, we have a peaceful transition of power. We don't have to ask, will the military back this one or that one? The military will do what the American people ask the military to do. We vote. We have peaceful transitions of power. And if we discover we've made a mistake, we get to vote again in two years, four years, six years, and try to 
correct our country and move it in the right direction. Another article I read this week was about the Statue of Liberty. Now, they're debating now whether or not they're going to let tourists go again up into the hid portion of the statue. Uh, tourists have not been admitted up there since 9-11-2001. Uh, Gail and I have been there. Our boys have been there. I'm sure many of you have been there as well. You remember the person who designed the Statue of Liberty? He was an Italian, Federico Auguste Bertolde. 1865, he said, You French should make a present to the Americans. You had an important part in their wars of revolution. Their revolution inspired your own. You would like to maintain a very strong relationship with the United States of America. How about on their 100th birthday, 1876, you unveil a magnificent new statue. Let's put it in New York Harbor. More people come to America in those days by ship across the North Atlantic into New York. That would be the place to put it. He had a sketch. Eleven years, he said. He missed that part. It took 21 years. It was 1886 before finally the dedicatory services were held. It was going to be huge. He needed a brilliant engineer to build in enough strength. And he turned to a young man who had very little reputation at that point. His name was Eiffel. Eiffel was the engineer. Years later, of course, he would come up with the idea of the magnificent tower that stands in Paris to this day. Now, most sculptures of this type were made of bronze, cast bronze, but this one was much too big for that. The pieces of bronze would have been too big, much too heavy. So he decided upon copper and decided that if wooden pieces were properly carved and shaped, that careful artist work could shape the copper with mallets around these wooden pieces. It is said that he used his own mother as the model for the Statue of Liberty. If you look carefully, you see that Statue of Liberty is treading on tyranny and holding high the light of liberty. And so it was a young Jewish woman who wrote the poem that was accepted to go on the base about your huddled masses yearning to be free. Come to the statue. Come to America. More people are trying to get into our country today than any other country in the world. Uh, we're not at the end. We just need corrections from time to time. God's anger is short-lived. He wants us to know, what did you learn? What did you learn? What did you learn? How can you do it better in Tulsa, in Oklahoma, in the United States of America, in the world? Another. You remember when Abraham Lincoln was grieving over the number of deaths being incurred during the Civil War. You remember we lost more people in our own Civil War than any other war we've ever fought, by far. Thousands upon thousands were falling dead every month. When a minister from the North asked if he could see the President, and when he came gushing into the room, this minister said, Mr. President, doesn't it make you sleep better to know that the Lord is on our side? And Mr. Lincoln said, I do not sleep very well because I keep wondering if I am on the Lord's side. America needs to keep asking, 
Are we doing things the Lord's way? Are we seeking the will and purposes of our God? Are we trying to help make it possible for all people to be a part of the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven? Number three. Dr. Walter Brueggemann always invites people who read his commentaries to look for strong nouns and verbs. Look for strong nouns and verbs and the times that an author repeats strong nouns and verbs. We did this last Sunday. Let's look this one. He uses the name, this poet, the name given to Moses at the burning bush again and again. O Lord, O Lord, O Lord, the Lord, O Lord, O Lord, the Lord, O Lord. O Lord, O Lord, ten times, twelve verses. And what it says is, I extol thee, O Lord. Use that word very often, extol. It doesn't find its way into my everyday speech, extol. But the word has to do with lifting up, lifting up. I lift up the name of the Lord my the one at the burning bush, the one who sent Moses back to Egypt, the one who freed his people, the one who parted the waters of the sea, the one who gave them Torah, the Ten Commandments, that one. Lift up that name, that Lord, the only true God, as he has drawn you up. One of the scholars said, You need to go back and read Exodus 2. And so I went back and read Exodus 2. When Moses, who had grown up in the palace of Pharaoh, one day saw an Egyptian savagely beating one of his fellow Israelites, Moses struck out in anger and killed the Egyptian. Someone else saw him, so he had to flee. He fled from Egypt all the way into the Negev desert and late one afternoon had come to a little oasis, a watering hole in the desert, And he sat down to rest for a moment. He saw seven sisters come and start drawing water. They had hardly begun when a group of shepherds came up and chased them away from the watering hole and started drawing for their animals. That didn't sit well with Moses. So he chased these shepherds away and proceeded to draw water for the seven young women and their animals. Therefore, they got home a little quicker than usual Their father asked, how did you get the water drawn so quickly? Well, there was a man who chased away the shepherds and not only helped us draw, but drew for us. Why did you not invite him to dinner? Go invite him to dinner. See if he's still at the well. So they rushed down. Moses was still there. Moses was invited to come to dinner. Ended up marrying one of the daughters. And here is the same verb. I lift up the name of the Lord my God as he has drawn me up out of Sheol, the place of death, the pit of my life. As surely as Moses drew up water for these young women and their animals, the Lord God has drawn me up. Number four. His favor is for a lifetime. His favor for a lifetime. Eilenberg, Eilenberg, One of the sites of the Thirty Years' War. In 1647, there was a Lutheran pastor in Eilenburg. When all other pastors had died and his village had been laid siege, soon enough, disease and pestilence came. The 
people couldn't get outside the city, couldn't get outside for fresh food, fresh water, and they were dying. Pastor Martin Rinkart kept a diary. In 1647, he had more than 5,000 funerals, including that of his own wife. But the next year, he wrote a poem that's become a hymn. You see, the favor of the Lord does not take away all the hurts and pains that the world visits upon us. There are lots of bad things happening in the world all the time. But this ancient poet saw that when things are going well, God is happy, and when things are not going well, God is not happy because God's favor is in the good times and the bad times. Pastor Rinkert wrote, Now thank we all our God with heart and hands and voices who wondrous things has done in whom this world rejoices, who from our mother's arms has blessed us on our way with countless gifts of love and still is ours today. Our Lieutenant Paul Galante, he didn't mean to be alluding to Scripture at all, but it fit well for me. Our last book in our Bible, Revelation, says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will open the door, I will come in and eat with you and drink with you and you with me. Paul Galante was a Navy pilot in the Vietnam War. He was shot down. He would spend the next six and a half years in a North Vietnamese prisoner of war camp. A raffle. He was finally freed. And on the 30th anniversary of his having been freed, he was asked, How has life gone for you since your release 30 years ago? And Lieutenant Paul Galante said, Any day is good when the doorknob is on your side.